Does someone you know and love have Alzheimer's or another form of dementia or some other serious illness? Do you question how you will select the appropriate level of care for your loved one? Are you familiar with advanced care planning? On this episode of the Executor Help Podcast, one family's Alzheimer's journey and the lessons learned along the way. Welcome to the Executor Help Podcast, the show dedicated to help you settle an estate, pick an executor, and avoid family fights. For more information, visit davidedy.com. Now here's your host, David Edy. Welcome to the Executor Help Podcast. On this episode, with me is Labina Fleming. She's the author of I Love You Always, One Family's Alzheimer's Dementia Journey and Lessons Learned Along the Way. Um, welcome to the podcast, Labina. It's really an honor to have you here. Thank you so much for inviting me, and it's my honor. First, I want to congratulate you. I know I Love You Always was awarded the 2021 Today's Caregiver Friendly Award, which recognizes outstanding books, media, products, and services, which has been designed with the best interests of the caregiver and their loved one in mind. Um, how did you? How did it feel to uh, to win that award? <laughs> Can I tell you honestly that I didn't even know I had won it? Um, I had a uh, relative reach out to me in an email and say, congratulations on your award. <laughs> and I reached out to her and I said, what award are you speaking of? And then she told me and I was like, oh, wow, that's great. So um, I, was, I was very pleased because my goal is to get my book into the hands of as many caregivers as possible. And um, that certainly will provide another opportunity for me to do so. So um, let's get into what, what made you want to share your family's story on taking care of your, your mom. Um, I'm a very spiritual person, so I'll say that first. And during the course of my uh, caregiving journey, I felt led to keep a, a journal, which I fought tooth and nail um, because I didn't want to relive the events of the day by writing about it at night. I just didn't want to do it. And um, if you've ever been in a tug of war with God, you know, you're going to lose. So he kept putting it on my heart to journal the experience. And then once my mom passed away, um, he helped me see that I couldn't keep what I'd learned to myself. It was very important for me to share um, all of the little tidbits that were helpful to me with other caregivers out there. So that was pretty much the impetus for the book. Okay, well, we're going to get to what you learned going uh, going forward um, in the book, but why don't we just talk a little bit about your mom and who she was? I say in the book that she was a self-proclaimed badass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she was a woman of extremes. Um, she was stronger than anyone I know. She lost a son to cancer when I was six, and she never allowed us to see how that pain impacted her. It wouldn't show up until many years later. And she and my father divorced when I was 12, which left her to raise five of their seven children, um, the seven children they had together alone. Right. And right. although my dad helped, it was my mom who was the driving force of our household. Um, she worked hard to ensure that we had everything that we needed and most of what we wanted. And I don't know how she did it, honestly. And she was a protective lioness who would do anything for her kids. But she was also a troublemaker who liked being in the, in the midst of chaos, <laughs> which, which is why she and my dad married and divorced three times. Three times. Uh, three times. 
Uh, they couldn't live with each other, but they couldn't live without each other, But um, which is a testament to her loyalty. Um, if she was in your corner, she was in your corner. Uh, she loved my dad until the day he died, and her strength continued to show um, as she buried two more of her sons. Um, she was somebody who bent, but she never broke. Wow. She and, was amazing. And, and when did you start to notice there was changes in your mom? She did so many things in her life, you know, keeping the family together. Um, and clearly she loved you guys fiercely and uh, was, you know, was probably the, the, the matriarch of everything. When did you start to see the changes in her? Well, my mom initially had a stroke in the late 90s. So the changes that we saw in the beginning, we attributed to stroke damage. But around 2010, we began seeing more uncharacteristic changes like she would misplace items, but she'd accuse others of stealing those items she'd misplaced. Um, she be began having challenges naming objects and things. Uh, she'd forget what she had just been told, just becoming more confused and easily frustrated. And because of my background with hospice, I knew that she was exhibiting signs of dementia, but I didn't want her to have dementia, if that makes sense to you. Right. So I sought out other diagnoses you know, other possible reasons for the behavioral changes that we were seeing. Wow. So going through, so how long, how long did it take before you said, okay, that there, there's something wrong with mom and we need to do something? Well, um, probably 2012 was when I started seeking out other explanations for her behavior. And we, we went through tests and she did have a diagnosis of hyperparathyroidism, which does uh, present similar to dementia. So she had the surgery for that, which involved remove, removing her parathyroid glands. And the doctor had said that we would probably see some changes within a few months. But instead of seeing positive changes, it actually exacerbated her symptoms. And we reached a point where we couldn't deny it anymore. When she was, was going to have the, uh, the, the surgery, did you think, okay, she's going to have the surgery and she'll be okay? Did you, that's exactly what we were hoping for. And um, we had the first specialist that we went to actually refused to do the surgery. Um, but the second one, you know, she was on the same page as we were. And she she really made us feel hopeful that that once she had this surgery, that the symptoms that we've been seeing would would disappear. Do you see that's being some of the uh, common problems or not problems, but effects that families probably will go through, that there's going to be some sense of denial that, that the, this disease is, is, is taking hold of their loved one? If you know anything about dementia, you're definitely going to go in denial because you don't want your loved one to have this illness. It's a thief. And um, you know what the outcome is. There's no cure for dementia. And uh, yeah, you, you denial, I think, is a very common occurrence when someone is diagnosed with dementia, not just for the family, but for the person diagnosed as well. So having going uh, going through what your family did, what is it what stayed with you in terms of taking care of your mom? And the uh, there are a few things that stayed with me, actually. The most important, I think, is the value of, of having an anchor. Um, mine was God. I think that when all else appears to be falling apart, which at some point in time, it will appear that way, that you have to have a constant to hold on to. 
So that's what I'd say first and foremost. And then I'd also say denial is not going to delay the inevitable. So the sooner you recognize what's going on and the sooner you can put plans into place and put affairs in order. And lastly, I would say um, what is in the best interest of your loved one should drive every decision that you make. Do you, were there any problems along the way that you uh, encountered with your, your siblings? Did, were you all on the same page? Were there arguments? By the grace of God, my siblings and I worked very well together. We would hold regular um, meetings and discuss whatever issues were going on. Although my brother Ken was the healthcare power of attorney, um, he still valued the opinions of everybody else and the decisions that were made were joint decisions. So I'm very grateful that we did not have that experience. The personalities of my brothers and I meshed very well together. Those of us who are a little stronger you know, would voice our opinions and those who were more passive, you know, they were just very agreeable. So we were blessed. In, in, since you wrote the book and you've probably talked to hundreds or maybe thousands of people on, on individual situations, is that common that people seem to get along when there's a, a family crisis like this? Absolutely not. <laughs> What, what Absolutely have you seen? not. More often than not, there's a lot of quarreling and, and disagreement and everyone thinks they know what's best. Um, a lot of times, a lot of times caregivers may come from the place of what's most convenient or most important to them, as opposed to being empathetic towards their loved one and going from a place of, you know, just trying to put themselves in their loved one's shoes and making decisions with their best interest and heart. And I um, always tell people, I use the quote, and I wish I could remember who said it, what others think of you is none of your business. And that, you know, you just do the best you can as a caregiver and that's the best you can do. Yeah, because you're probably gonna have a lot of outside voices who aren't living your day-to-day -day reality. And Everybody knows what's best. You know, everybody knows what's best and they don't walk in your shoes, you know? So I, I would tell, tell caregivers to invite someone to come live in your home for a week so that they can see what you live 24 hours a day or invite them to take your loved one to their home for a week. And I would venture to guess that their opinions about your caregiving techniques would change immensely. Yeah, I, I can relate to that because we, uh, my dad had uh, dementia and we got a lot of family uh, outsiders who had no idea what was going on, what we were going through, but they, they were able to run their mouths about what, you know, you should be doing this and why you're doing that to him and blah, blah, blah. He's okay. There's nothing wrong with him. They don't see, they don't know. It, it's, it's baffling to me as opposed to why, you know, someone who's around the individual 24 seven or looking after them, why all of a sudden would you be doing things that are out of the norm if it's not, if it wasn't for their best interest, that it, it, when it's, it's, I guess in family conflicts, it, it's a time when you actually see who, who's who, who they really are. Um, and I always say, usually, um, I usually say weddings and funerals bring out the worst in people, but I've added dementia, weddings, funerals, and dementia bring out the worst in people. It's absolutely right. You, so what did, what do you know now that you didn't know before? It's oh, there's, there's so much, there's so much. 
Um, I learned how important self-care is. Um, you can't adequately care for others if you're not well. So self-care should actually be a priority. And I don't want to hear that you don't have time. You know, you that's something that you have to absolutely make time for. Just like when you're a new mom, you know, you sleep when your baby sleeps. You, you take little moments for yourself wherever you can find them. And I also learned the importance of holding on to as much of your pre-caregiving life as possible so that you don't lose yourself in the process. Um, your, your loved one is not gonna be with you forever. So what, what is your life gonna look like after your caregiving journey is over? So try to hold on to as much of your pre-caregiving life as possible. And lastly, I also learned that it's one thing to know what to do because I have extensive experience through my hospice um, work and I'm also a certified dementia practitioner. That's not a medical professional, but um, mm -hmm. it gave me a very good knowledge about the, the progression of dementia. But I learned that what you know, you, you know, you may know what to do, but that knowledge can go right out the window when you are caring for a loved one. Your heart and your emotions tend to drive your actions as opposed to your knowledge. So yeah. it, I, I know, I know how hard it is. It, so I know when we had conversations before, did, did you have a plan for your mom as things were going on? Cause I know there was a couple of um, areas where, you know, could have been triggers to go, okay, we need to do something. And, but uh, what, what was it? When did you know that you needed to have a plan or did you have a plan at the outset when the things started going uh, wrong? At the, uh, probably after we saw that the, the um, parathyroid surgery was not going to be successful, we did put a plan A in place. My mom's desire was to stay in her home. That was it. That was the, well, two, two, two things. She wanted to live until 90 and she wanted to live in her home. So um, what we had, we had arranged for one of my nephews to be a caregiver for my mom during the day when she reached the point where she couldn't be home alone. Right. Um, my brother Fred passed away and my mom, her dementia symptoms escalated, which I hear is very common when there's a traumatic event in the life of someone with dementia that they can have an exacerbation of symptoms. Um, so that was an, a spiral that, that kind of started the whole trajectory towards her end of life. Um, she ended up in the hospital after fall and followed that with rehab and our plan A fell through this nephew who, you know, because of his own health issues, didn't have a full-time job who had volunteered to be this caregiver. We had no access to him. He was MIA and we needed a plan B, but we didn't have a plan B. So that caused us to go into crisis mode. So I recommend everybody have a plan A, B, C, D, E, F, whatever in place and be ready to put each plan into effect at a moment's notice because that's how quickly things can change. So I guess the plan A, B, and C, D, E, F, it, it, because there is no right way, but it, the importance of having conversations and all being on the same page that you can probably map out your own journey uh, of what we're going to have to do together. Exactly. So exactly. So being a cohesive unit is important to um, continue to have those conversations. Um, 
and all through these different, uh, and I think it's remarkable that all during these times where you're, you, you've had these setbacks and your mom had the, the surgery and then, you know, you figure, okay, she's going to be okay. And then she had, a, you know, it seemed to get progressively worse going along all this time. Everybody was all on the same page. Nobody veered away. There wasn't one little problem. No one argued. This is what we should do. You know, I have to honestly say we didn't by the grace of God. You know, we really didn't. I think um, I'm a very organized and orderly person with those types of things. And so I was the one who made sure my siblings had access to all information regarding my mom, medical, financial, et cetera. And um, as I had stated earlier, we had regular meetings to discuss everything and to make sure that we made informed decisions. Um, We didn't really argue. We'd have discussions. They never got heated. So I, and again, although one brother was her healthcare power of attorney, he still wanted consensus. We, we just wanted to do things on my mom's behalf, what was in her best interest. And we didn't have anybody who was power hungry. You know, we were just really a cohesive unit trying to do what was in the best interest of our mother. That's great. And I guess during that time, she always felt that someone was looking after maybe she couldn't communicate it to you but she felt that there was love that her children were around her and with that i i wanted to add something that um that i think is important to add too because one of the things that i hear often from people is that you know why is my loved one so mean to me why does she treat me so badly what we've seen and what i've learned from other caregivers the hundreds that i've spoken to over the years is that you know, it seems that the the one who is closest to the person with dementia is the one that catches the brunt of everything, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And in our case, my brother, Ken, who lived next door, she she was very hard on him. He was the one that was accused most, although all of us received accusations. He was the one that was accused most of stealing and hiding things and yeah. bringing people into the house, you know. And I think it was because he was the closest to her. Now, I don't have any thing to validate that theory but you know that's just based on the things that i've heard from other caregivers i would totally i totally agree with that in my case of my dad um i had to make the decision that he had to be put into uh into the hospital and he never forgave me he was he he was every time i go see him he would yell at me he would scream at me and it it was hard on me because here's your father being so tough on you i just go outside the room and then i come back and says you know what dad I love you and I'll be back tomorrow and see you. But, you know, he, but he, I, I was, I was enemy number one for the yeah. longest time up until he passed away. He was always angry with me, but I had to do things to not only myself, but my uh, sister, we had to do things to keep him safe and also keep my, my mom safe. But, uh, and I thank you. I thank you for saying that because I, I, I cried a lot. I'm not going to lie. I cried many, many tears And um, one of those involved a decision for my mom to go back into rehab as opposed to coming home. And she was so, so upset with us, just so upset. And I remember calling my best friend, Marilyn, and crying to her. And she said, I know it's hard, but your primary responsibility is to keep your mom safe. That's number one. And so that's what I kept in the back of my head. I had to keep her safe. We had to keep her safe. And sometimes safe meant doing things that weren't popular. 
Exactly, because in, in my case, I my uh, we had to have a family intervention because we saw the changes in him, and he was saying and doing some out, outlandish things, and I was the one in the intervention who spoke up. And uh, when I got home, I said to my wife, I said, I know my dad and that guy I was talking to, that was not my father. I have no idea who I was talking to. He, he, he wasn't, but, but that's part of the disease. He's not himself and you have, and I think that was the, the, probably the turning point for me that I said, okay, things have to be different. Um, I have to parent him and it's uncomfortable because I, I don't know how to parent my parent. And then you also have to put up his, put up with his uh, yelling and screaming at you. Cause you're only trying to do as you're saying, keep him safe. Oh, the, the it's, it's, I, it, I wouldn't wish this on, on, on my worst enemy, what you have to go through. And when it, when it's your, your parent, it's so hard. And I, I try to really emphasize the importance of, of being empathetic to what your loved one is going through um, I actually have an exercise that I do when, with my with some of my presentation. It's a loss activity, um, and it goes through, you know, what what it must be like for them to um, start having their friends not show up anymore, you know, because they can't handle the constant questions over and over and over again, or to not be able to do some of your favorite activities that you love to do, or you know, to, to have your loved ones start drifting away because they don't want to be around you, you know, and to lose your sense of taste or, you know, just a lot of things that people experience as they age, but it's even more so if you have dementia. And um, there's usually not a dry eye once we go through that activity because it, it's, it's powerful and it just lets you see just a little, a little taste of what someone with dementia is experiencing. So you can understand why it's important to help them have as much autonomy as possible for as long as possible. And, you know, encourage them to, to do whatever it is that they're still able to do for as long as possible. My mom was, <laughs> she was one that would insist on doing everything that she could. And she would always say, if I don't use it, I'm gonna lose it. So, and that was true. Yeah. That's very true. Oh. So when would you say is the best time if a family is going through, um, you know, someone who's got dementia or, or uh, Alzheimer's, when should they start thinking about or bring up the conversations of, of estate planning? They should do it before they're going through it. The best time to do it is now. I would say any adult who has property or fine, you know, financial means of any type, if you have any assets, you need to do your estate planning now. And um, also your advanced directives need to be done now. You don't want to wait until you have to put things into place. You want to be prepared. That's all part of pre-planning. And I think COVID should have taught all of us how quickly our physical and emotional state of being can change. Yeah. You know, uh, families are challenged enough with love, yeah. with the loss of a loved one, whether through death or dementia, so why do you want that added stress and grief by leaving people to fight over you and your assets? So advanced care planning and estate planning are, I think, two of the greatest gifts you can give to your loved ones. And I've seen so many families fall apart trying to decide what's in uh, a loved one's best interest and trying to decide how assets are to be distributed. Why do that to them 
when just taking a few hours to, to plan in advance can alleviate all of that. My mother, um, and I'm, I'm preaching from, from my learning again, I'm, I'm sharing what I learned. My mom had been on me and I talk about this in my book. She wanted to plan her funeral. And this was probably the first time she mentioned it was probably five years or so before her death. And I would always poo poo her, you know, don't worry about it. You know, that's not the time to worry about that. And then as two of my brothers passed away each time, she would say, I want to plan my funeral. And I was so hesitant because in the back of my head, I was hearing all all of those old myths. You plan it, it's going to happen. Exactly, exactly. And I was, I had taken her to breakfast one morning uh, at a restaurant that was probably a block or two from a funeral home that she had expressed an interest of being, uh, having her service at. And we were having breakfast and she looked at me and she goes, I want to plan my funeral. And after that breakfast that morning, we went to the funeral home and she did her uh, pre-planning, everything the way that she wanted things done, uh, went to the bank and got a draft to pay the, you know, the cost of the funeral. And I can't tell you the relief I felt when that was done. Yeah. Relief to the point that I actually went home and did her obituary. While I was at a place where I was thinking clearly and I had access to all of this information and I could ask her questions that I'd hopefully be able to get information, uh, information about. And the beauty of that was after it was done, I didn't have to think about anything again until she passed. So I think that that's what people need to realize. You know, it only takes a few hours to do what needs to be done and you don't have to think about it again. And it was such a relief. Everything flowed so smoothly, you know, with the exception of her casket. They didn't have the casket she picked, but other than that, everything just went so smoothly that, you know, again, that was stress that, that we didn't have to deal with because she cared enough about us to take care of it in advance. I think the key was you had a conversation. Exactly. You had a conversation. And then when, because I, I went, to, went through the same thing as well. Um, when my parents were having their will done, it, it, being an advisor for over 30 years, I would always be in the, the room with, uh, with the client while they're having their, uh, you know, talking about the will and stuff like that. But when it came time for my parents, I wasn't in the room. My sister was there. I just couldn't fathom that happening that, you know, they're not going to be there. So I knew it was in the well, but I wasn't in the room to do it. But we had the, we had the conversations. And in your case, you had the conversations. And then when your mom did pass, it probably gave you a sense of relief because it was what she wanted and it made you feel better. And, and, and that you couldn't ask for anything more than that. And I was fortunate in that both of my parents had everything planned out in advance and um, when my be- when my dad passed away, I can remember there were a lot of issues, but my response was always the same. You know, these are his wishes. If you have a problem, take it up with him. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, 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 before we go, I'd like to, you to talk a little bit more about your book, what's in it, and um, and how where it's available. So okay, thank you. So again, my book is I Love You Always, One Family's Alzheimer's 
dementia journey and the lessons learned along the way. And what it is, it's, it's actually the story of my mom. I speak a little bit of her childhood and uh, up to the time of her death and her desire to live to the age of 90. And I'm not going to tell you whether or not she made it. You have to buy the book to see. But um, I also include a lot of the valuable lessons that I learned uh, in, in many categories. I talk about self-care. I talk about estate planning. I talk about advanced care planning. I give caregiving tips, all of that. Um, you know, and just present it in a way that I think is meaningful and uh more easy to understand the progression of dementia. So that, because not only do I share the different stages, but you're able to see where my mom was as she was experiencing each of those stages. So um, that's that book. And, and actually most recently I published a caregiver journal, which is called Caregiver to Caregiver, a scripture focused guided reflection journal because journaling was so valuable to me during the course of caring for my mom, I tried to put together a, a resource that again includes lesson as lessons as well as the beloved scripture that that sustained me through the journey. Because I can't stress enough, you need an anchor. You need an anchor. Yeah. What's great about the book is that it's available in uh, paperback. You've got the Kindle version, and you also have got an audio version. So people don't have any excuses why they can't get the book and why they shouldn't get it because you've got all those various uh, forms of way to get that important information. It's so important. It won an award. Again, I'll report, repeat that it was a 2021 Today's Caregiver Friendly Award, which recognizes outstanding books, media, products, and services, which has been designed with the best interests of the caregiver and their loved one in mind. So... I think you've 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 said it all in, in uh, everything you've shared with everybody today, and I for that, Labina Fleming, I appreciate you taking the time to share your journey, talk about the great person your mom was, and also how great your family was to stay together during that tough time to get uh, things done and to follow her wishes. So for that, I thank you for being here today. And I thank you for having me. And I I'm neglected to say that the book are available on Amazon. Um, you can just type in Labina Fleming, L-A-B-E-N-A, -E Fleming with one M, and it'll bring up my books or go to my website, www.labinafleming.com. And that I will have in the show notes. There'll be a link to your website as well. Once again, Labina Fleming, thanks again for being here on the Executor Help podcast. Thank you, Wish David. you all the best. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Executor Help podcast. For more details, visit davidedy.com or follow David on Facebook, LinkedIn or Twitter.